and I also think that women in general don't know how to we don't know how to use our pelvic floors you know that's not part of the birds and the bees talk when we are learning about puberty and birds and bees and all that sort of stuff you know there's so much that's missed out on you know wouldn't it be cool if as part of learning about puberty males and females learn about how a female or how a person who has a cycle a menstrual cycle feels throughout her cycle these (laughs) when you're in this phase you may be feeling these emotions and this is why because you're having this hormonal spike you're listening to the untaming podcast rewild the child here is your host emily Hi, I'm Emily and this is the Untaming Podcast. Today it is the new flower moon here in the Southern Hemisphere and this is episode 47. I hope you enjoyed Mary's episode with Kimberly Seals Allures on breastfeeding, feminism and black maternal health. The next episode to come out on the 19th of November to coincide with the full flower moon is with Miriam Lancewood. She is the author of Women in the Wilderness. She and her husband Peter spent seven years living in the New Zealand wilderness. And if you haven't listened to it yet, we had a special appearance from my husband Nick in the last 10 questions in 10 minutes episode. Uh, The final episode of the 10 in 10 series will come out next week on the first quarter of the flower moon And it is my answers to the 10 questions. Uh, Today's episode is with Dr. Ainsley Rowan, a chiropractor. She and I covered a lot of ground in this one, so enjoy. (music) 32-year-old Dr. Ainsley Rowan was born in and grew up in Gore and currently lives in Fielding, New Zealand with her husband Cam and their two-year-old son Arthur. Some of Dr. Ainsley's greatest achievements in life have been graduating chiropractic college, completing the coast-to-coast multi-sport race in 2015, finishing second, and growing a baby. Ainsley founded the Live Chiropractic Clinic in Auckland, a space that is both healing and nurturing for the community to visit. She also runs her Ainsley Cairo accounts on Facebook and Instagram, which are full of her expert advice regarding a variety of topics from pregnancy to birth recovery to optimizing baby development. In addition to this, she has begun Brain Under Construction, a website offering courses to further educate and empower parents on her specialty topics. Last night, she had seven hours of sleep, and for breakfast today, she had a cup of tea and a smoothie. Ainsley, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me. So I came across your account on Instagram last year and really enjoyed how deeply you went into so many topics surrounding the movement of babies. And I was extra excited to discover that you're also in New Zealand. Um, (laughs) There are so many aspects I'd love to cover with you today. But before we get into, you know, specifically into baby and child movements, One of your posts that especially caught my attention was on the optimal pooping position. Yes. So uh, with that in mind and other variables, could you talk to us about 
pelvic floor health for parents before, during, and after pregnancy? You know, why is it important and what can we be aware of to help ourselves? Absolutely. So I think pelvic floor health is getting a torch shone on it at the moment, which is really cool, but we've still got a really, really long way to go. The thing about pelvic floor health is that up until very recently, there really hasn't been much pelvic floor health for women in New Zealand. There are some countries who have, you know, specialist pelvic floor health physios that are compulsory visits after birth, you know, so they get anywhere between six or over six visits after giving birth to make sure that the pelvic floor is really working as it should. Mm. Um, And that's an area that's kind of been missed in New Zealand. So we are making waves and there are changes being made slowly and surely. But I think the biggest take home message is for birthing humans to understand that during pregnancy, there's such an increased load on the pelvic floor. If you imagine that you're pelvis is a bowl your pelvic floor is the bottom of that bowl so (laughs) pelvic floor dysfunction doesn't necessarily mean weak it can mean too tight as well so what you really want is a functional pelvic floor and really the best way to to assess and see how your pelvic floor is functioning is through a pelvic floor physio so We're getting more of them in the country, which is cool. And the reason that I came to uh, learning more about the pelvic floor is because I see a lot of the other end of pelvic floor. So I have a lot of, you know, women who are in their 60s coming in and we're talking about lower back pain. And we dig a little bit deeper and we dig a little bit deeper. And then I ask questions like, can you jump on a trampoline? And they say, no. Um, And I say, can you run out to the letterbox, you know, to grab something from the courier? And they say no. And so I started to notice a direct correlation between this group of humans who have what is, you know, what they've been putting up with for years and they haven't really created a link in their brain between pelvic floor health and what's going on in their structural lower back. Mm. yeah so um pelvic floor health is important because it can impact i mean it impacts us for our entire life and both males and females have a pelvic floor so sometimes i get really you know honed into women's health but we do need to be aware that males have a pelvic floor as well yeah um and that 50 percent around 50 percent of all women or all birthing humans who have had a vaginal birth have some form of prolapse Oh. Yeah, interesting, right? That is interesting, wow. Yeah, and so with the correct guidance and assessment, you can avoid products mm-hmm. um, and you can help repair it. So that's why pelvic floor physios are heroes and why we need more of them <laughs> yeah. and why we need it to be publicly funded mm. so that, you know, it's common practice that women or birthing humans talk about their pelvic floor and that it's common practice that everyone sees a pelvic floor physio after giving birth. Is there like a time frame, like how far after birth? Like, do you want to leave it for a few weeks to let it recover? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So I believe uh, that the pelvic floor physios, the guidelines say you can get a pelvic floor check 
anywhere from six weeks postpartum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also get a checkup preconceiving, and you can also get uh, a checkup while you're pregnant as well. Mm. So a checkup while you're pregnant can be quite valuable because it can teach you how to. A lot of people don't actually know how to use their pelvic floor properly, so you need to be able to contract it but you also need to be able to relax it so if you think about a a baby moving through the birthing canal um the pelvic floor is surrounding the baby as they move through that birthing canal so you really need to be able to relax that (laughs) in order Mm. for the baby to make safe passage yeah so back to the optimal pooping position what what is it Is, is there just one or yeah, what, what yeah. do you know about it? Yeah, so basically the puborectalis muscle acts like a sling for your colon, so which is your poop shoot, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are sitting with your knees at or below your hips and you're sitting in an upright posture or potentially with your pelvis rocked backwards, mm-hmm. then that sling or that muscle creates a tightening, which creates a kink. Right. So it means that in order to get the poop out the poop chute, <laughs> you, you need to create force or push. Right. So uh, the reason I'm quite passionate about having an op- optimal pooping position, which means that your knees are higher than your hips um, and that you're leaning forward slightly, is because it enables easier movement and less pressure or pushing from you, mm-hmm. which especially in pregnancy can help, may help you avoid things like hemorrhoids. Right. It's especially important for those lovely post-birth evacuations, mm-hmm. shall we say, <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, so it just creates a, creates a greater ease. Uh, and it, it, I mean, in different cultures, it's normal to have that position. Um, but not in our culture. So it would be cool to see a shift, you know, it would be cool if it was normal that everyone had, you know, pooping stools, which are just um, a stool to elevate your feet so that you can lean forward into that position. Right. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask, like how to handle high toilets, you know, using a stool as one. Yeah. Yeah. What, like standing up on the seat, like putting your feet up to squat (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Um, personally, I don't think I'd have the balance of coordination to do that. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, you can use anything. I think um, post-birth, I actually had to use a really high toilet. Funnily enough, in hospitals, some of the toilets are quite high because you don't want people getting up and down off a low toilet yeah. if they have low mobility. So mm. yeah, I actually have held my knees up. Uh, which isn't that easy. You can imagine that posture. (laughs) You can imagine that positioning now. But general rule of thumb is you don't need a fancy stool. You could be using, you know, a couple of high Tupperware containers upside down, one under each foot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So often incontinence issues can be a result of a hormone imbalance, you know, whether it's something normal due to breastfeeding or something abnormal like an underlying health issue. So do you know if there is a way to recognize whether the incontinence is a result of something hormonal or something physical, like pelvic floor health? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, as a guideline, that the structure should always be looked at. So like, the problem with me saying that is that not everyone has access to a pelvic floor physio. Mm. Because even if you're having 
a hormonal incontinence issue, there can be structural mm. there can be a structural component to that. And I also think that women in general don't know how to we don't know how to use our pelvic floors. You know, that's not part of that's not part of the birds and the bees talk when we are you know, learning about puberty and birds and bees and all that sort of stuff. No. You know, there's so much that's missed out on. You know, wouldn't it be cool if as part of learning about puberty, uh, girls, males and females, learn about how a female or how a person who has a cycle, a menstrual cycle, feels throughout her cycle. Yes. These. (laughs) When you're in this phase, you may be feeling these emotions. Mm -hmm. And this is why, because you're having this hormonal spike. You know, like, oh, there's so much that so much that we could change in how we communicate things isn't there okay now what about for children you know is there anything to be aware of like for the use of potties or um what are the the seats that you put on toilets for them or anything like that yeah that's a great question it's not something that i'd really thought about until very recently actually (laughs) and i was preparing preparing some information for a post so you've kind of beaten me to the um, me to, the, to the finish line here but interestingly enough I think that children are quite often more comfortable when they're in a lower potty with their knees above their hips Yeah. so you can get all these fancy you know you can get these fancy toilets which are or potties which are a little bit higher and funnily enough I actually bought one without thinking too much about it for my son and we'd been using uh, a, lo- a much lower potty before that and he had 100% body trained himself without any effort. Like if his nappy was off, then he'd just sort himself out, mm-hmm. which was really cool. And then when we introduced the higher potty, um, I mean, there's many things that have created a change with that, but um, his positioning is different. He's less comfortable in it. Um, it's more difficult to climb on and off. So, yeah, the post that I'm preparing is basically m- – giving parents and caregivers information about what might be the most comfortable option for toddlers when they're learning to toilet train. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that then. Yeah. Um, so while we're still on the topic of pooping, what should we know about the positions babies are in when we're changing nappies? Oh, yes. This is a great <laughs> one. Um, I'm laughing in my head because my family call me the poop troll. <laughs> It's a bit of a running joke, an inside family joke. Um, they're like, you've got much too much information about, about pooping. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, There's never too much. <laughs> yeah, never too much, right? So I guess with babies, they're going to poop in their nappy. Okay, so when are you talking about how to change them mm-hmm. in a way that keeps their uh, hips and spine safe? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, most parents and caregivers are exposed to you grab both feet of the child and you essentially lift them up and kind of create traction and kind of fold them in half a little bit. That is, I mean, that's what you see on TV. Yeah. That's what you see on adverts. That's what everyone is exposed to. Um, however, there are lots and lots of different ways that you can change an nappy and lots of different ways that you can change an nappy without creating traction on the hips. So, um, I'm not sure how much detail I should go into here, but 
our, a child's a baby's hips are still developing and they're not at all like um, adults' hips. So they're quite soft um, and we want to make sure that we're protecting them. And part of protecting them, uh, especially when they're a newborn, is ensuring that we're not forcing them to straighten out or creating any traction on their hips. So um, you can bend the knees, which once you get the hang of it is actually a really te- uh, easy technique. Mm-hmm. You can roll the child onto their side, which mm-hmm. is also a really easy technique. Yeah. Um I guess it's about using no nappy change is going to be perfect because <laughs> when you have a punami and you've got poo up to, you know, the back of the child's neck, yeah. you've just got to do your best. Like if you just have to, if it's, if it's, if the game's over and you've got to cut the clothing off, <laughs> off then you just do that, right? You know? Um, so I don't mean any judgment when I talk about nappy changing techniques, but I think that mm. parents, and caregivers, it's good for them to be exposed to lots of different ways that you can do things, especially ways that create more structural safety for the child. Right. Okay, now I'm just moving on from poop. Um, so cool. I'm curious about using chiropractic care on children because some people, especially older generations, may find it you know, odd or unnecessary to adjust newborn babies because they're so new to the world, they've just arrived, yeah. yet... You know, I know people whose newborns have been born by C-section and received adjustments which help with their digestion or other people whose babies were born using forceps and, and then the baby couldn't move its head so to one side. So, you know, that birth trauma, it seems to me at least like an obvious use for chiropractic care in newborns and babies. But this leads to a few questions. First, you know, what is it that you're doing to these babies to help them? We're checking for uh, we're checking for spinal function, mm-hmm. so every single bone in the spine moves. We know that, right? Yeah. Um, and so it creates the spinal unit is made up of twenty four movable segments. So when each one of those movements or those segments move, then it creates movement with the one above and below. So if you have any dysfunction in those joints and it means that range of motion can be compromised Mm -hmm. but it also means that um it can put pressure on the central nervous system as well so so yeah as a chiropractor i'm making sure that the function of the spine and the cranial unit and the jaw are all working optimally for that newborn Mm -hmm. and in turn I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack here, and I'm actually just gonna talk about some of the uh, research that has been done. So th- there's a long way to go with this research, and the research that I'm about to talk about is actually uh, done through osteopaths, so quite a little bit different from chiropractic. Mm-hmm. But basically, a hundred healthy newborns were assessed between six hours and seventy-two hours after birth, and ninety-one of those a hundred, so ninety-one percent of those newborns had motion restriction in the cervical spine Wow! so yeah so we need to I mean there's lots of room for improvement on this type of research and we want research to be evidence-based and basically top tier when we're talking about research Mm -hmm. so this is just a baseline and something to start with and hopefully the research can continue to expand from here but essentially what it tells us is that the birthing process in itself can be relatively traumatic. And if a newborn doesn't have full range of motion within its neck, 
than simple things like turning to feed or um, getting the suck motion coordinated can be a little bit more difficult than is needed. So I guess I see chiropractic um, for newborns as a support that's super gentle. Cool. So would there be a reason that a baby might need adjusting if they didn't receive any birth trauma? Like I'm just thinking of that 9% because you said 91% had some sort of restriction, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was the question again? Would there be a reason that a baby, say they've had a completely natural, undisturbed sort of birth, and mm-hmm. they didn't need forceps or anything like that, Yeah. would there possibly be a reason that they may still need adjusting? Yeah. Yeah, you don't necessarily. So much happens in the birth process. Mm. Um. And there's a lot of movement that's required from the child to actually, or from the baby to actually get through the birth canal. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rotation and unwinding that happens. And even the cranial bones, I'm sure you're aware, the cranial bones fold in on themselves mm-hmm. in order to get through the birthing canal. And so even through the expansion process of the cranial bones expanding and coming back to a more normal shape, mm-hmm. um, that process in itself I mean, that happens in the days, weeks, and months that follow birth, but that's essentially from birth, and that process in itself needs to happen uh, and can sometimes need support as well. Right. So I think, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but what I'm trying to say is that you don't necessarily need to have birth trauma to have a baby assessed, Mm -hmm. because if you were to get them assessed and there was nothing wrong with them, or not, not that there's anything wrong with babies, but say they didn't need to be adjusted, then it would be considered a clear check and you'd yeah. be on your way. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. So are there any sort of signs that parents could look out for in their babies to be like, oh, actually, that doesn't look quite right. I'm going to take them in to get assessed. Yep. So you've got um, head direction preference. Mm-hmm. So that's when a baby prefers to look one way. If there's any difficulties with breastfeeding and latching, uh, one important aspect that I look at in newborns when they're born, and I've always looked at this, um, but it was especially prevalent after birthing my son, actually. His chin was uh, a centimetre off midline when he was born. Hmm. Um, And we had some latching and feeding problems. And I spoke to (laughs) two obstetricians, about five midwives, and three lactation consultants about his jaw function and what I was doing as a chiropractor for that. And it was in what was incredible is that all of them could see what I was talking about. All of them understood that that was definitely having an impact, but it was not something that they were trained to look at. So all of those people that I came in contact with all of them said, look, that's actually something that I'm going to be taking into consideration now moving forward. And, you know, everybody's skill set is differently. So had I come up, had had I been dealing with, you know, different obstetricians or different midwives or different lactation consultants, then I, you know, maybe that's something that they would have looked at. But I think it is commonly missed sometimes. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, looking at the symmetric or looking at the entire face, head and neck as a unit, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the jaw allows us to get a better holistic picture of, of the function or dysfunction that might be going on for that baby. Right, okay. 
So then what could a parent expect when they bring a young baby in to see a chiropractor? So there's an assessment. It's mm-hmm. relatively gentle. Every chiropractor is going to do their own version of an assessment. And the chiropractor will talk you through everything. So if a, if a baby comes to see me, then you're checking you know, gentle range of motion. You're assessing primitive reflexes. You are assessing hips. You're doing a bunch of stuff that essentially should have already been done but I'm looking at it from a central nervous system perspective I'm seeing is everything integrating as it's meant to can I see full function here or is it restricted in in one way or another that may actually be influencing how this baby is moving in life and therefore fun, uh, affecting their function does that make sense yeah yeah cool okay now for parents whose babies are born in a hospital one of the very first things they're put in is a car seat to come home. So we'll talk about car seats as containers soon, but first I'd like you to help us understand the use of rear-facing car seats. Yes, Mm. cool. So the first thing I want to say is that I don't want anyone to get upset about what I'm going to say. (laughs) I'm just going to talk about some of the structural facts about how children develop. Mm -hmm. So... By the time a baby's neck is not like an adult's neck, okay? And a baby's head size, percentage-wise, is considerably larger than an adult's head percentage-wise. So, you know, a baby's, when a baby's first born, quite often if you break their body into thirds, a head will be a third of their body, right? And an adult's head is not a third of our body size. Mm. So uh, it's important to take that into consideration. Also, a child's, a baby or a child's, neck is nowhere near as strong as an adult's Um, and that's to do with the fact that they have to build up that strength and that skill set but also to do with the fact that their head is just proportionally a lot larger than than the rest of their body right so oh sorry proportionally larger than an adult's yeah so when we're talking about how the how the spine forms the spine of a baby is still growing or a child is still growing. So in order to grow, it has areas of cartilage in it. Now, these areas of cartilage are softer. They're softer than bone, which means they're not as strong. Um, so a child who is three years old um, has a fully formed the, – the third bone down from the top of the neck is fully formed, but it takes until they're three for it to be fully formed. Mm. When they are six – the second to top bone in the top of their neck is fully formed. So it takes six years for that bone to fully form. And when they are eight, the top bone in the neck is fully formed. So it takes until they're eight for the top three bones in their neck to be fully formed. The top three, yeah, the top three bones in our neck are really special. They work quite differently from the rest of our spine and they're quite a unique, unique shape and they work quite well with each other. The top, two bones in our spine are the reason that we have such great well some of the reason that we have such great head rotation Mm. so it's important to protect the spine as long as we can now the statistics say that most impacts most high speed impacts happen from the front so if you have a rear facing child then the most of that impact is absorbed by the back of the car seat and their whole body is thrown into the back of the car seat upon impact. 
um, which means most of the impact is going through the car seat. Now, if you have that same child in that same accident forward-facing, then most of that impact is going through the child's neck. Right. So um, I think in other countries, rear-facing is quite normal. But in New Zealand, rear-facing is, I mean, forward-facing is almost seen like a milestone. Yeah. You know, um, and there's lots of reasons why there's lots of reasons why parents might forward face their child, you know, like if they've got a child who's excessively car sick when they're rear facing. Um, I mean, there's so many reasons, um, but where possible rear facing extended rear facing or rear facing until minimum age two is advised. Mm-hmm. The New Zealand guidelines say age two, but that's just a guideline. I don't, I'm not actually sure about this. I don't think it can be enforced. Um, so yeah. So, because oh, yeah, I was about to ask, is there an age to turn forward facing? So that would be not before two, ideally. Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah ideally not before two. Yeah. Um, that's the New Zealand guideline, so I guess that's what I have to, you know, <laughs> legally say. But um, and I, when I say extended rear facing, I mean, you know, past the age of two. Yeah. Um, because that's assuming that most people would rear face until age two, but most people. I mean, majority of people would turn their children front-facing before age two. Mm. I'm not sure if they know the structural implications of that if they were in an accident. Yeah. Um, there's lots of people that say, oh, you know, but they don't have room for their legs. But we need to remember that a baby's um, structure is quite different from ours. And, you know, I was out for a walk with my two-year-old son. We were in the pram, and he quite regularly tucks his knees up. He doesn't oh, yeah. necessarily. Yeah. yeah, like you know how babies quite regularly bring their knees up and flop their or bring their feet up and flop their knees out. Yeah, yeah. That's because it's a really well, babies, toddlers. That's because it's a really comfortable hip position for them, and it's quite natural and normal. So that whole um, children running out of leg room is, I mean, if you have a very tall child, then this may be of concern for you. Basically, I'm not car seat qualified. I'm, you know structurally qualified mm-hmm. and neurologically qualified to talk about this stuff but the best option if you're looking for if you're thinking about wanting to rear face especially if you have a new baby and you're still in a capsule mode is to actually talk to a professional about this mm-hmm. so there are people there are car seat technicians all over New Zealand uh, who can give you advice and help you achieve what you would like to achieve because there's actually a lot that comes into rear facing like the type of vehicle that you've got you know mm. some car seats are not going to fit into uh, the type of vehicle that you've got rear facing um some car seats are not capable to be rear facing over a particular weight so um there's lots that comes into it yeah uh, and that's when you've kind of got to speak to a professional in that area about it mm-hmm. i'm not sure if this is really related to rear facing but i did see a post that you did specifically on the head slump yes yeah the head slump <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think most most parents are familiar with that car seat position, right? Yeah. You know, when that head slumps down. So the biggest thing is that this will bring me back to, okay, what are the structural implications of the head slump? So the biggest implication, especially in newborn babies, is that the um, we want to keep the airways open. And if the head is flexed too far forward or that it's extended too far back, then it actually closes over their airways. So there's a really cool image 
on my social media uh, that has a picture of a straw being bent forward and backwards. So if you imagine a straw upright, you can drink through it. But if you fold a straw, not one of the bendy straws, you know, if you fold it, <laughs> just a normal straight straw yeah. forward by 45 degrees, then it's harder to drink through because it cuts off that circuit, the, the flow. Does that yeah. make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a baby's airways are quite similar to that. Um, well, that'll give you a good, you know, image in your brain. So the most important thing to remember is that quite often it can be to do with car seat fit, how the car seat is fitted into the car and also how the child is fitted into the car seat. Right. So this once again would come back to, if you're having this problem regularly, then it would come back to seeing a car seat technician or getting some help from a professional in that area. You also, it's probably also worth mentioning that there's a few things that, you know, a mum might walk into a cafe and she has her baby with her asleep in its capsule and she sits down to have a cup of tea and the baby's sleeping so she doesn't want to wake it. So she loosens off. She thinks, oh, I'll just loosen off the capsule straps. So that's actually, um, if you loosen off the capsule, capsule straps, often that gives the baby an opportunity for sag and slump um, and that can create... Uh, issues in itself because a capsule is made for the child to be strapped into securely so um yeah that's that's something that parents don't actually know and that should be common knowledge Mm. i feel like when these you know when parents are sold car seats and capsules and things like this there should be a full a full-blown explanation that goes with them about how to use them yeah was there anything more you wanted to say about car seats or rear facing? Um, I could say the head slump can also be to do with what you're dressing your child in. So if you are, you know, if you've got a hooded uh, jumper on, mm-hmm. and that hood is slumped back behind their neck or the upper back, oh, yeah. then mm-hmm. it pushes their head forward. Yeah. Um, so dre- how you dress your um, child in a, a capsule or a car seat has an impact on the fit of the car seat or capsule as well Hmm. now one of the projects you have coming up on your brain under construction website is the baby containers project yes which i'm so excited about yeah um yeah can you tell us kind of what containers are yes okay so a baby container is basically any anything that contains a baby so (laughs) you know a car seat a capsule a high chair I'm just listing things that are really needed, right? So so the problem with baby containers, uh, you know, baby containers are also baby walkers, jolly jumpers, bouncinets, you yes, know. Like there's lots, and yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, so there's heaps and heaps of different types and categories of baby containers. Now, I don't actually, there's nothing wrong with baby containers, provided they're being used appropriately. Um, but quite often people are not aware of how to use them when to use them, how often to use them in a way that can help facilitate development. And because of the baby container uh, phase, fad, marketing push, I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure what to call it. Um, It's now socially normal to have lots of baby containers in your house. Um, And it also leads parents to think that a child needs to be you know, in an exosaucer or they need to be in a jolly jumper in order to be able to develop or to learn that next skill. 
Um, and unfortunately, that's not the case. Well, not unfortunately. It's, it's unfortunate that parents don't know that that's not the case. You don't need all of these bells and whistles um, in order for children to develop mm-hmm. because the brain will lead development. Um, what children do need is plenty of time to explore um, how their body moves in space and have the freedom to be able to do that with regard to the developmental phase that they're in. So if you were to um, put your baby in an exosaucer for an extended period of time, so say say the baby was happy, you needed to cook dinner, you popped them in an exosaucer for an hour, and they weren't yet standing. I'm, I'm assuming this exosaucer allows them to be able to stand. You know, it's kind of like a... Um, they can put their feet on the ground and stand if they want to, or they can sit. Um, if that baby is not sitting by themselves or they're not standing by themselves, then they're actually developing muscles in a way that their structure is not yet designed mm-hmm. to need. It also can compromise the development of their hips because the hips develop in a very sequential way and force is applied gradually throughout development. So, you know, a baby um, is able to roll uh, and then they're able to move on their stomach uh, and then they crawl or sit depending on where they're at uh, and then they walk So, or then they cruise and then they walk. So you can see that as that development unfolds over the first year or more, then that load is increased slowly but surely in the hips in a different way. Mm. And that helps development. That helps the development of the hip joint. Um, and it also helps the, their brain develop because it means that they're getting, you know, the brain is, a, is develops layer by layer. And if you skip a layer, then at some point you're going to have to go back and do some work on that layer. Yeah. Going back to what you said about using them appropriately, does that mean just for a short amount of time? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, that's quite a big question, and that's why <laughs> I'm making the baby container project. Yeah. But I'll try and answer it the best I can. Basically, I'm not necessarily against containers. Mm-hmm. Like, I've used containers with my child. Um, they can be a necessity of life. If you've got three children two dogs and a cat and you have a newborn baby and you might need to keep them safe while you are folding the laundry. And so containers are great for that. Um, I guess the rule of thumb is that if there's container time, then that needs to be balanced out with free play as well. Mm. And I think that is often lost. Um, So the free play should be prioritized and then um, the container time should be used as a resource to help facilitate the family to get things done that they need to get done. Mm. And now, yeah, that makes me think because in our culture, we're so focused on having our babies do things sooner. There are even, you know, those special seats to hold babies in seated positions when they haven't actually learnt to sit. Or, you know, you often see photos of parents proudly holding the young babies in a standing position when they can't even, you know, roll over yet. So, yeah, is there harm in doing these things? 
Once again, it comes back to that brain development and the layers, letting the layers build on top of each other when they're ready. Mm-hmm. And it also comes back to what is the baby ready for? So a lot of parents you'll see with their, you know, they might have a two-month-old child and, and they're standing them on a table and showing everyone how their baby wants to walk, which is really cool. But it also the reason that their baby is actually creating any strength through their legs is because of a primitive reflex that's being um, elicited from having their, having a surface underneath their foot. Mm-hmm. So that reflex is there. It's designed to help babies develop strength and coordinate and coordination in their legs. It's not designed for the baby to bear their weight um, because their hips are not ready for that. So, it is important that we are aware of the structural development, but also the brain development as well. Right. Also, um, you know, this is about standing babies before they're ready, but I'm going to segue here into sitting babies before they're ready. Mm-hmm. Sitting is a highly motivating position for a baby to get into. So if a baby, you know, they can see more, the world looks different when they're sitting. Um, everything's a little bit more accessible. They're closer to mum and dad when they're sitting. You know, they're, they're elevated off the floor. So when that position becomes motivating, it means that the baby's going to want that position. So if you've sat them, and every child is so different. So I'm using mass generalizations when I'm speaking here. Mm. Um, but if they've spent a lot of time, if you've tried to sit them up before they're structurally and developmentally ready for that, then chances are they're going to want to work on a sitting skill rather than work on their rolling or their crawling. And also, in order to have adequate strength and coordination to sit properly and safely, they need to develop adequate strength from and coordination from rolling and potentially commando crawling first uh-huh, or crawling yeah. first. So the skills that they learn from rolling, tummy time, back play, as well as, you know, side-lying and commando crawling or crawling, mm-hmm. give them the, the skills that they need to have in order to be able to sit unsupported safely. Right. Yes. That's exactly where I was about, what I was about to ask. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, so then I was going to ask about tummy time, which I've kind of got to. Um, are there any other key things that we should know about tummy time? Yes, tummy time is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think tummy time previ- in previous generations to us has been something that's incorporated into handling. Mm-hmm. And so my push and my drive, I've actually got a course called the Tummy Time Project, which um, gives parents and caregivers access to take this uh, access to information that takes the stress out of tummy time and, and supports and guides them in how to, you know, handle, hold and play with their babies in a way that supports tummy time, which means that tummy time isn't necessarily something that is another thing to do because parents have enough on their plate. It is something that is built into how they're handling their child mm-hmm. so um oh man tummy time's a big topic i could talk about it for a while and i don't want to bore you but basically there has been a handling shift over the last 30 years and the handling shift um has come from many different things it's multifaceted it's come from 
you know, containers being used a lot more than they have ever been. Mm-hmm. It's from um, the back to sleep guidelines mm-hmm. have changed how parents are not only sleeping their children, and we stand by the back to sleep guidelines. They are very necessary. Um, but it's also created a fear in parents. I've had a lot of conversations with parents in practice um, who were genuinely scared to put their baby on their stomach because mm. because the back to sleep campaign has associated stomach time with the baby dying, mm-hmm. which is not <laughs> – I can see how where that fear has come from, but basically, the tummy time project is a is I've got lofty, lofty goals for it. I'd like to re-educate parents and caregivers on what tummy time actually is, mm-hmm. um, and I think we can still allow naturally paced development and incorporate tummy time. Right, cool. I was just thinking of a post that you did, but. Yeah, your post was on swim nappies. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I found it very interesting because I don't know very much about them. Um, can you give us a little insight into what they hold? Yeah, yeah, they are designed to hold poo and stop poo from leaking into the pool, right? But they're not designed to hold urine. So, honestly, so many parents get caught out by this and it makes... I mean, I have a chuckle about it because how many parents out there, I, I mean, I don't know, but a lot of parents out there listening to this are probably thinking, I put my child, change their nappy and get them into their swimwear before we go to the pool. And by the time we get to the pool, they've, they wet through. You know, they wet the car seat. They wet the pram. And this happened to numerous friends of mine and it just, I, it makes me giggle so much and I thought I'd do a wee post on it and I have had that post actually got quite a lot of engagement because people <laughs> people assume that a nappy is going to hold urine mm-hmm. as well as poo, but it is not. So, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And because there was something else you said and it had to do with, like, the chlorine smell? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, when you sting... Uh, you know when you're swimming and sometimes you go to a chlorinated pool and your eyes really sting Mm -hmm. and then other times you go to that same chlorinated pool and your eyes don't sting Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the same with um you know that chlorine smell that's in the air yeah um that is all to do with when the chlorine comes in contact with ammonia-based fluids which are you know sweat urine so the chlorine yeah the chlorine bonds to and there might be some this is very basic okay there might be someone out there who's like Ainsley you've got this a little bit wrong so (laughs) but my understanding is that the chlorine binds to those organic fluids that are ammonia based and then it creates a gas and that gas is you know floats to the top of the water and then um, gets into the air. Mm-hmm. So when you walk into a swimming pool and it smells a lot like chlorine, it can or may be because the chlorine's been doing its job and it's been getting rid of all of the organic matter in the pool. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. So, and I'm not sure. I really don't know how that would work because obviously there's there's pools that are non-chlorinated you know you've got salt based pools and there'll be some sort of um chemical reaction that occurs 
in those pools as well to keep them clean, but I'm not 100% sure on those at this point in time. Mm, cool. So this is just like an example of one of the things to follow you for because it's not quite you know, about chiropractic care, but it's still very interesting to learn and for parents <laughs> to be aware of. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, you're right. I do share lots of random things. Yeah. I uh, have quite an, a curious brain, shall I say, <laughs> um, that likes to collect random knowledge. Mm, I like so, it. <laughs> so I do like to share little bits and bobs like that. And I feel like that's actually really helpful for parents to know. Like, mm. If a new mum reads a post somewhere online that says, breaking news, swim nappies do not hold urine. She goes, okay, cool, that's great. That might save her, you know, three or four wet car seats. Yeah. And and this is all the stuff that doesn't necessarily get talked about as a parent. Because, you know, the reason that I put this stuff online in an easily digestible, non-judgmental format is so that people can access it. But in the parenting world, you've got quite a lot of judgment. And... Mm. That's what I'm trying to steer away from, but I'm also trying to create a little bit of education so that people don't necessarily feel dumb for asking questions. You know, yes. I've got multiple friends who have had wet car seats from um, putting on swim nappies on the drive to the pool, uh, which makes me giggle. But then I've also been involved in a couple of conversations where parents have ridiculed or made fun of other parents for not knowing that swim nappies don't hold urine. And yeah. and I'm like, no, 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 that's actually not okay because you think that a nappy holds a neuro, uh, holds urine and poo. And I don't actually know if the wrapping says, if it says on the swim nappies, does not hold urine. It probably does somewhere, but it's in amongst all of the pretty pictures that we can't see it. Well, you're a parent. You're not gonna you're not gonna spend that time like reading the packaging on some nappies. You're gonna assume that they do what nappies do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and I also had. One interesting comment was because someone said, oh, I'd never use reusable nappies because then the urine goes in the pool. And I was like, like, actually, if you put a real nappy in a pool, it, it gets pretty big pretty quickly because it absorbs all the all water. The, all yeah. the water. So, it be, so, yeah, it's, um yeah, I like to have a giggle every now and again and kind of hope that my platform provides quirky support for parents um, in a non, non-judgmental, easily digestible format. Um, yeah. And that's where Brain Under Construction comes in, into it as well because I'm extending on the education for anyone that wants it. So, cool. yeah, I'm excited um, about it. Yeah. Um, I've, I feel like I'm going backwards and forwards a bit here. But an, another post you did that I liked was on having a baby in a carrier or a wrap, you know, specifically about whether to face them outwards to the world or inwards towards you. Can you share this with us in terms of, you know, hip development and spinal support? Yes, this is a big one. Um, So basically when we're carrying babies, we need to make sure that we have safe hips. So the reason that we want to have safe hips is because I've talked about babies' hips not being fully developed and how you carry them in a baby carrier can support the development of their hip or it could hinder the development of their hips. So um, the International Hip Dysplasia Institute actually says that baby wearing is beneficial for preventing and treatment of hip dysplasia. Now that comment I actually posted online and there was quite a bit of confusion by what it meant. Basically, it doesn't if you've got hip dysplasia and it's been diagnosed and you need to absolutely do everything that your specialist is suggesting, 
but baby wearing done right can help prevent hip dysplasia down the track Mm -hmm. because it actually helps the development of the hips it helps build up it helps create pressure into the um, joint socket into the middle of the joint socket and that pressure helps to form the socket around the joint or around the ball of the femur so yeah I'm quite passionate about baby wearing and I don't even necessarily this is going to be controversial I don't necessarily love the term baby wearing because I think it creates exclusion of parents who don't see themselves as a baby wearer does that make any sense yeah I think so yeah so um if you're wearing your baby you definitely want to make sure that the hips are safe you also want to take into consideration the spinal shape so a newborn baby has a spinal a spine that is shaped shaped like a c and they progress the spinal shape changes and progresses as the baby moves through motor milestones So, you know, as they get used to tummy time, they then get a C shape in the back of their neck. And then as they're crawling, that increases the C shape in the back of the neck, gives them heaps of strength, but it also um, helps develop the lumbar curve and whatnot as well. So you need to take that into consideration when baby wearing as well. If you have someone who is forward facing a baby in a front pack and they are not doing it well, then the baby's hips won't be supported uh, and the spine, the head will be thrust forward. Another reason why this is really important is that you, if the head is thrust forward, so say you had a bigger bosom and that baby is forward facing, then it means that their, the spine is put into extension, this, the head doesn't have support. And it also means that the center of gravity for the mother is moved forward. So there's a lot more load on the lower back. Mm. So I think from a safety perspective from for the mother as well uh, yeah you've got to really be careful and have a bit of finesse if you are going to forward face right is there because you're talking about the shape of the spine mm. so is there an age or a weight or a growth milestone when that's yeah when it's okay for them to be facing outwards or i guess is that more just how you have them placed starters you need to make sure that the baby carrier that you have can structurally support their hips facing forward mm-hmm. um, and has the seal of approval from the International Hip Dysplasia Association. Uh, secondly, the child needs to have really, really great head control and be able to hold their head up for extended period of uh, periods of time without needing to rest it. Right. Also, if you think about when you're walking with a child, their head is going to become a little bit uh, like a gyroscope. Is that the right word? (laughs) So their head is going to be constantly having to correct where their body is in space in order for their head to stay upright. So if they're just playing on the ground and they're getting themselves into a crawling position and then they get themselves into a sitting position and they've got great neck control, that is quite a different skill set to having great neck control when you are being carried on someone else's chest um, and there's constant movement. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and changes of direction and all the rest of it. Yeah. So then, yeah, what you were saying about the baby carrier, if it's designed for forward facing, in general, are most baby carriers mostly just designed for 
facing inwards? Man, I'm, I'm doing a lot of research on baby carers at the moment and it is a rabbit hole. Um, basically, if they don't specify that they can't, uh, a lot of them specify they can face front face. Um, some of them don't. There's lots of alternative positions as well. Like some of them you can side carry with. Oh, yeah. yeah. So side carry means it's kind of like a really good, depending on the, the strength and body condition of the parent, because you don't want to put a whole heap. Oh, when you're carrying a baby around your house, you're most of the time carrying them on one hip anyway. So, mm. you know, essentially putting them in a carrier and slightly off center on your chest or front with them facing you means that they their world opens up and they can look around and see a lot more, but they aren't necessarily forward-facing. So, right. yeah, I guess this is definitely something that comes down to every parent's just what they see as fit. I would like to create some more education around um, when a baby is actually ready to forward face and with relation to their structure and their hips and spine and also their head stability. It's There's not really any hard or fast rules out there at the moment. Hmm. on that yeah and I guess there's so many different designs as well and there's different things and <laughs> yeah and every carrier will have a like they'll have specifications they'll say look baby needs to have good head control hmm. um and I'm like what is good head control and what do you <laughs> actually mean by that because if one parent thinks good head control is that the baby can you know lift their head off the floor in tummy time and another parent thinks that good head control is that they're able to sit up by themselves and play for half an hour. So mm. so I think there's a bit of a grey area there. Yeah. Um, okay, now before we wrap things up, I want to talk about drinking. So, like, first off, breastfeeding. Do you know if there is any truth that the movement of the tongue during breastfeeding is gradually developing a wide palate capable of, you know, holding all their teeth? Yeah. I can't draw it right now off the top of my head on any recent research that's evidence-based. Um, but I have read quite a bit in the past that suggests that the breastfeeding definitely helps the formation and expansion of the cranial bones and so the formation of the mouth muscles and coordination as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's so much on palate and mouth design. That's actually incredible. There's a lot to it. Yeah. Okay, then knowing that there are a lot of bottles out there developed to mimic the shape of the breast, do you know if they're still able to produce this same effect or is there a different tongue movement? Yeah. There are so many different types of teat shapes. Mm-hmm. There are so many different types of teat materials. Um yeah. I don't think I don't think any quite get close to what the human nipple does in the mouth because that is crazy. <laughs> the the extension and the length that gets created when the nipple is drawn into the mouth is is quite incredible really. And I don't think people are quite aware of just what the nipple is doing in the mouth. Um mm-hmm. and saying that sometimes bottle, bottle feeding is needed sometimes. So yeah, I, d- I definitely think that the mechanism of, of how a mouth develops is between breastfeeding and bottle feeding, there will be a difference because they're different, but then every single breast is different as well. Yeah. So every single nipple is different. So 
there's a lot of variation on the type of nipples as well. Right. Yeah, of course. What about sucking on other things, you know, like thumbs or dummies? Yes. I did a post on this as well. Um, basically, it's important for everyone to know that I'm not pro or anti-dummy. Um, I think it's really important to have a balanced view on things like this because yeah. every child's needs are different. So, you know, I've seen some um, babies in practice who have really benefited from having a dummy because it's helped their oral function so much and it's actually allowed them, uh, it's helped the vagal nerve stimulation, helped them to calm. So part of that sucking reflex and getting something into the roof of the mouth definitely helps to calm the vagus nerve, um, which helps them to be more relaxed. So that's the rest and digest kind of branch of of a nervous system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, did that answer the question? Yeah. Uh, what about with like thumbs? It's the same sort of thing. Oh, there's so much that comes. Yeah, so much that comes into it. I mean, you've got it, sucking a thumb for an extended period of time can damage or cause malformation of the teeth. Mm. Um, but I think you know, early on in utero, babies suck on their thumbs to practice sucking in order to get ready, get their mouth ready for the nipple once they're born. Mm. So, you know, there's a little bit of like letting nature take its course and letting that child do what they innately know is needed for them um and also making sure sometimes they might be sucking their thumb because they've got some form of cranial dysfunction and they actually feel relief when they get their thumb into their mouth so yeah yeah, it's about making sure that that function is working optimally so you can be sure that they will drop that habit when the time is right for them yeah so that leads me to drinking out of cups is there a difference to be aware of with like a sippy cup or an open cup or a straw cup yeah so the straw or the sippy cup creates depression of the tongue so when you're swallowing if you just swallow right now and i'll swallow as well mm-hmm. okay and oh, i forgot to tell you what to look for so <laughs> so if you pay attention to what your tongue is doing with regard to that roll from the tip all the way to the back when you swallow so swallow now can you feel oh, yeah. can you feel that roll jut up into the top roof of your mouth? Yeah, it's on up the... from like the back of the tongue through to the front, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So everyone's going to feel it slightly differently depending on, but yeah, that tongue motion is similar with everyone's swallow. Mm-hmm. So when you put a sippy cup or a straw into their mouth, it inhibits that ability to be able to get that really nice roll motion going on. Right. Um, so learning to drink from a straw is definitely a skill set that children need. Um, but if when you're starting solids, if you were to start with an open sippy cup, it's super beneficial for allowing that tongue mobility to build and for them to get that muscle coordination going. Um, it also helps with the thrust reflex. So if you, if a child is not developmentally ready for food, their tongue will come out and that is actually designed to thrust food out of their mouth because they're not ready for it yet. Hmm. So, um, yeah, there's just, I feel like I've just thrown a whole heap of information in you, at you in a not very formatted way, but I hope that makes sense um, as to why open cups are a really great idea, especially when you're first adding solids. Yeah. No, I really like that because both my kids used doity cups. They had like a slanted sort of yep. 
side so they were less likely to spill it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm, they were cool. Okay, so now I will put links in the show notes to your Brain Under Construction website, the Live Chiropractic website, and your Facebook and Instagram accounts. Is there anywhere anywhere else you recommend if people would like to learn more or get in contact with you? Um, yeah, that would sum it up. They can get in contact if they've got any questions and I can follow up. You mm. might want to also pop in... Um, ClickSafe New Zealand has some really great car seat content. Okay. She yeah. is brilliant. So um, you could throw in, I mean, I probably need to ask her permission, but um, you could <laughs> throw her details in there as well because with car seats, um, I can talk about it from a structural developmental perspective. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's where my school set ends because I'm not car seat qualified. Yeah, cool. Ainsley, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to share this knowledge with us today. Thank you so much for having me on board. It's been fun, and I hope I haven't been too waffly or confused too many people. No, not at all. It's uh, yeah, it's been so much knowledge. Like we covered so many different topics. Yeah, we did. Um, <laughs> my final question for you to end on is: if the entire world's knowledge was lost and you could only leave one sentence for future generations, what would it be? <laughs> Okay, so probably this. Our job is not to, de- to lead development, but create an environment that supports and facilitates development so we can let the brain lead development. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.